Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone's well this week and managing to get by in whatever lockdown or partial lockdown situation you're in in your individual countries. Our guest this week is event rider Sarah Bullimore, who chatted to me about her breeding programme, her career highlights and coming oh so close to a big win. In my eyes, he won Poe. We lost the title by 0.1 of a penalty, so it was pretty close. I'm also joined by our news team to talk about the horse-human partnership and what's in it for our horses, as well as Vets Mental Health and the British Eventing IT project. Finally, Vet Ricky Farr from Farr & Percy Equine will fill us in on his best tips for dealing with mud fever, which is definitely timely at the moment with the amount of rain we're having. This is one of those things you're going to come across if you're dealing with horses long enough. You've got to get on top of it. So that's enough from me. Pull off your tail bandage and let's get going. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this week, Sarah Bullimore. Sarah has been placed at Five Star numerous times, including a second place at Poe in 2017, and rode on the British squad at the European Championships in 2015 at Blair Castle. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And we are featuring one of your up and coming stars in the magazine this week, your homebred Coraway. And he is the first of your homebreds out of your absolute superstar mare, Lily Corrine. How has it been for you bringing your horse up through the levels who you've known all his life and he must mean so much to you? It's really exciting. I mean, it's been lovely because obviously, you know, I've known him from the, the day he arrived on this earth. Um, and yeah, he's just quite a character. I mean, he is tiny and realistically, if someone had ever said to me, oh, you must come and look at this, you know, I've got this fabulous, fabulous little horse. And I'd say, oh, how big is it? And, you know, if they said 15, two, 15, three, I wouldn't even have gone to see it. You know, I would have, would have said it's too small, but, um, you know, I've bred him, so I, I, I have him, and uh, you know, I have to ride him. So, um, and but he's he's not a small horse to ride. So, you know, it just shows if they're good enough, they're big enough. Yeah, he really is a little horse, but a larger than life personality, isn't he? Oh, most definitely, yes. He has a huge ego and a huge personality. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, bless him. And you were saying when we were speaking for the magazine feature that he's got quite a sort of confident, cocky personality, which is probably what makes him great, but has also sometimes worked against him where he's thought he knows better than you. Yes, he, he always think he does know best. And he's, he is a, he's a funny character because he, although he is very confident, he's just very sure about what he wants to do. But certain things may spook him and he'll turn and flee rather than sort of stand and fight sometimes um, if something makes him jump. You know, he's very quick to shoot off in the other direction. Um, but yeah, very, very confident in what he wants to do. Well, hopefully, so long as that's aligned with what you want to do, that is all going to work out well. And tell <laughs> us a little more about your breeding programme. How many homebreds do you have now? Currently we have six on the ground and he is obviously the eldest as a nine-year-old and then we have a seven-year-old uh, who actually she's she's gone down the dressage route uh, she just seemed to be that that suited her best she does jump as well and she did very well as a won, a, won an awful lot novice level but actually she could be really smart 
on the on the flat side uh, and then we had a six-year-old and then we actually had twins who are now four and so that's been really exciting uh, you know seeing the the difference one was a filly one was a one was a colt so that's been quite nice sort of you know seeing them develop and obviously because they were in separate mares the the nurture versus nature and although they have a lot of similarities but yet their characters are incredibly different mm, that's really interesting so all of those foals born by embryo transfer but all the offspring of lily is that right yes yes and has it been sort of a learning curve for you doing doing that breeding program or is it something you've dabbled in before or is this sort of a new thing for you, you know, obviously since having Lily? No, this was definitely just we had Lily and, you know, she was such a beautiful mare and had so many lovely attributes that you just thought, why would you not, you know, why would you not breed with her? You know, it is such a lottery, all this breeding thing, but surely if you start with you know you, you use as good a mare as you possibly can and as good a stallion as you possibly can then you're slightly lessening the odds and mm. you know it still is a lottery but hopefully yes we, <laughs> we're, we're breeding the best that we can and you've used a few different stallions to, to produce those those young horses yes we've we've used something different every time and we've actually got another two due Lily is in foal herself for, for next season and we have a um, an embryo transfer as well uh, again with with different different stallions and my husband Brett keeps saying oh can't we go back to Baloo de Rue and uh, so yeah I'm sort of tempted but um, yeah I'm whether you can breed the same again, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Baludarua is the site of Revdarua, who has been your top horse for a long time and also of Coraway. And I want to talk more about Revdarua, but before we do that, just tell us who are the stallions of the ones that are due next year? So we've got a Contendro that Lily's carrying herself. And also we have a, a Comfort, Matthew Wright's young stallion. Hmm, interesting. Well, two C's there. It'd be interesting to see how, how they turn out being the same age as with the, the twins who you've got as well. Yes. And are they, those twins presumably are the same stallion? Yes, yes. Who are they by? So that was an Amiro Z. Okay. Yeah. Great. Oh, we're going to really look forward to following all those young horses as they come up through the levels. But we are going to talk a little bit about Rev de Rue. He is a horse you've really become associated with and, and built an amazing partnership with over over the years and he is one of the most talented horses in eventing but also I know he's not the easiest and you would definitely say that tell us about him so yeah he's I mean he's a lovely lovely horse and talent wise he is amazing but yeah he has been tricky in his brain and he's he just yeah you you have to just work him and and keep him happy and and certain things you know you can't take him head on you just have to sort of work around it another way and um and yeah it's it's all about keeping his brain brain right but i think you know we've kind of got the mixture now and he is actually one of the most consistent and um reliable horses on the circuit. Mm, I was looking at his record before this and he's completed 11 five stars. He's had some brilliant placing. He's been fourth at Burley twice. He was second at Poe. And of course, he won at the old CIC three-star level in Portugal in 2016. So as you say, although he is a, a colourful personality, he 
has been very, very consistent in his record. If you had to pick a highlight of his career, what would it be? Oh, wow, that's a tricky one. Um, well, I'm hoping there's still the um, ultimate highlight is still to come. But probably, I suppose, coming so close at Poe, um, I mean, basically, in my eyes, he won, he won Poe. And actually, with the, the new scoring system, he would have done. And it was something ridiculous like 0.17 of a second that pushed us over into the extra 0.4 of a time fault that basically um, meant we lost the, lost the title by 0.1 of a penalty. So that was, it was pretty close. Um, so I suppose, yeah, that would, that would be a, that would be a highlight. And, and also, I mean, both of his faults at Burley, I mean, he was pretty foot, foot perfect, both of, you know, both rounds at Burley there as well. Mm, yeah, I'm just looking at those results from Poe that year and you were just point one of a penalty behind Gwendolyn Fur, the French rider, um, which is, as you say, just so close. But maybe he can get his nose ahead and uh, and win one of the big ones still. How old is he now? Well, he's 16 this year, but yeah, he's he's amazing. He's he's tough and sound and um, I mean, hopefully he's he's got um, a little bit longer still left in left in the tank. But yeah. I mean, he he's still you know prances around like a spring chicken and uh, I mean we say he's he's basically four four times over now <laughs> <laughs> yeah he doesn't look like he's slowing down no um, <laughs> and Sarah just tell us a little more about you where are you based what's sort of your setup with your yard and so on so we're quite centrally based in North Bedfordshire, just just around the corner from Kiso Equestrian Centre, which is quite handy because we've got all of all of their facilities on the on the doorstep. But yeah, we're we're quite well set up with facilities at home, and we're a relatively small private yard, but uh, we we have everything from the brood mares and foals on the yards up to the five star horses. Hmm. And um, and with that breeding program, you sort of have the mares who are who are carrying the embryo transfer foals there with you, and do that all at home. Yes. So we've we've actually got another mare uh, of an owner's that will be having uh, having a foal next year as well, and they've actually having a um, embryo transfer too. I've sent a couple of mares just just to them for the moment so we didn't have quite as many at home but um, <laughs> they will be coming back to foal here okay you've got a bit of an overflow situation yes. going on <laughs> yes you can never have enough land <laughs> <laughs> and you can never have too many horses <laughs> no well this is the problem and the, the, the trouble with the breeding thing is you do they, you start collecting them and then you suddenly think oh hang on we've got those ones and they're all sort of you know they might have their little herd in a in a field but suddenly then there's a field there and a field there that's taken up with horses and just keeps growing <laughs> <laughs> oh. and when i was looking sort of back through your record you've been a real stalwart of the british nations cup effort over the past few years tell us what have you learned and gained from being part of that british squad in that nations cup series well, the, the Nations Cup series has been a brilliant series and it's basically where I sort of started and, you know, was firstly part of a team and, you know, it just gives you a little bit of an introduction that actually, you know, this is what it could be like and, you know, normally you're out there competing and you're doing, you know, you're, you know, yes, you've got your own team, but you're out there for you, whereas actually, yes, it gives you a taster of, of what could be you know, in a longer, longer term, hopefully for a 
a true Europeans or Worlds or Olympic team. Mm. And when you rode on that British squad at the Europeans in 2015, that was obviously a big British squad. It was at home. There were 12, 12 riders there. How was that experience? It was, yes, that was a little bit of a strange experience for us because obviously we came in very last minute and, it, you know, there was a, a big squad there. It, it wasn't it wasn't a normal sort of team situation. So, yeah, it was it was very different. And obviously being you know, up at Blair, rather than having a, you know, a team traveling out together, it, it was a little bit more disjointed than a than a normal sort of team situation. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it was a true representation of what usually happens. Mm. And I'm just trying to remember, you said you were called up last minute, it was very last minute, wasn't it? What happened? Remind us? Yes. Um, sadly, poor, poor Danny Evans horse, wasn't quite right and literally I'd been sort of sent up as a as I was the reserve and intending to sort of be there for the day just in case something happened and then probably trot up would have happened and I would have you know not been required and probably had to you know turn around and come home again and it was literally really last minute and um I was told actually yes you're you're in so it was a little bit of a little bit of um rushing round and I'd missed the there was an arena familiarization which all the other riders had had done and I'd missed that because you know I wasn't actually riding at that point so uh yeah it was literally okay quick get your horse in and and um let's get ready for trot up and and crack on and then yeah I was drawn quite early I was like 12th to go so it was all a little bit of a shock and you did a great test, didn't you? Lily was a really good girl. Yeah, she was amazing, actually. And uh, just, yeah, she pulled out pulled out all the stops. And because, you know, she can be a little bit on the sort of hot side. And uh, actually, she was she was amazing and did a really good test. So it was it was great that, that you did sort of get that that championship flag there. And obviously hope you can take that experience forward in the future, maybe with one of her offspring to uh, to be part of a, a smaller British squad at a championship. It's so exciting to have that continuity with your breeding programme. Now, Sarah, obviously we're currently in lockdown in England, but presumably you're pushing on with training and getting ready for next year. Yes, we've got the the older horses are having a little bit of a break at the moment, but they'll come up over the next few weeks and uh, start working again and start their fitting work in time for next year and just increase their fitness and we'll be training away over the winter and uh, you know hopefully the um, COVID situation will improve for beginning of next year and we'll be out be able to get out and and do a little bit more but I mean training wise at the moment at home we're we're fine and you know we can we can carry on with that at normal but um yes with uh certainly cross-country training and such we're so wet everywhere that that's all going to be um curtailed for a while but hopefully the, the ground will dry out a little bit for next season yeah for sure and um would you have you thought about competitions in the spring next year would you hope to have horses for badminton yes rev de Rue will certainly that that would be um on his list and uh, so he'll he'll definitely go there and then we have another horse compier which possibly he'll go somewhere else um maybe to Lemurlin or Bramham and and just Rev de Rue will go on. He's 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 better, I think, 
if he's on his own rather than going with a friend. He likes all the so attention. He does, yes. Um, and to be fair, it's like having more than one horse anyway, looking after him. <laughs> <laughs> With his split personality. Yes, pandering to his every need. So, yeah, it does make it a little bit easier. <laughs> oh, gosh, bless him. Well, I think we, we we all say we're willing to put up with the quirks if they're, if they're talented enough, and he's certainly got that. So uh, hopefully hopefully he can he can pull it out of the bag and, and have a good badminton when we, when we get there next spring. Thank you so much for joining us today Sarah it's been great to chat to you no problem it's been lovely to lovely to come and chat so we're more pandered for today's news section with all three of our news team joining me so hello first of all to our news editor Eleanor Jones morning and hello to Lucy Elder our senior news writer hello Lucy hello and last but not least, we have Becky Murray, our news writer. Hi, Becky. Hello. So we were just saying that because of lockdown, I'm not sure that any of us have been doing anything terribly exciting. But um, but what have you all been up to? Becky, what about you? What's going on in Scotland? Um, well, I went to visit my mayor, Chloe, this weekend and was like a child at Christmas getting to see her. Um, it's funny, I never considered myself a massively stressy owner until she went away. And I've been, you know, I've been getting pictures and lots of updates, but not seeing her on a daily basis has been really tough. And I'm driving my partner mental by talking about horses even more than usual, if that was possible. <laughs> and is she getting on well away for training? She is. Um, so when I saw her, she got ridden in a big open field and, you know, there was cows the other side just playing about and she was coping great. So no, her progress is really exciting. So yes, I'm getting ready to get her home soon and I have no excuse but to get cracking with her. Oh, that's good to hear. And just to point out to our listeners that Becky is not in lockdown because she's in Scotland. So uh, entirely within the rules for her to go and, uh, and visit her mayor in that way, just in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> Lucy, what about you? What's going on with you? Uh, not a huge amount here. I've mainly been dodging dodging the rain to ride my own horse and uh, and watching quite a lot of there's been quite a lot of good racing on this weekend. So I've been uh, staying staying dry watching that. Nice. That sounds like a good plan. And what about you, Eleanor? Oh, well, again, not a lot. I might be driven to cleaning my tech again, uh, which I did during the last lockdown. Things may have got that bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had uh, an, an in interesting experience on Sunday where it was entirely my own fault because I went to get my horse in and left the gate open behind me. So the Pony Club DC would have been appalled. And the mid-20s Welsh Section A, all 11 hands of her, did a one-pony stampede down the field, snorting tail in the egg escaped uh, she did stop on the good grass and I managed to catch her and then she just took off stood on my foot galloped about couldn't catch her pouring rain howling a gale and it's just like really <laughs> that sounds like I think even a small pony standing on your foot is quite painful <laughs> yeah luckily not shod but yeah it was just like, oh come on Violet <laughs> back in oh. the field <laughs> Oh no. Well, my mum sent me some videos this week of uh, her jumping our horse on the lunch. First time she's, she lunches him quite a lot in previous canter, but it's the first time I've seen him jumping on the lunch. So I'm really hoping that she'll get him so well trained that basically all I have to do is steer and stay out the way if he jumps <laughs> on the lunch. <laughs> Brilliant. Basically, he can just go eventing and I'll sit on his back and look great. That's the plan. <laughs> now, on to the serious news. Eleanor, I'm coming to you first today and you've been attending the Virtual World Horse Welfare Conference this week. It's always such an important forum for the horse industry, this conference. What was on the agenda this year? 
Yeah, it's always interesting and always uh, very much worth being at. Uh, this year, no less so because it was on It was all virtual for the first time, and the theme was the the horse human partnership. What's in it for the horse? And it it was just really interesting. I think one thing Wild Horse Welfare is always very very good at is making us question sort of how we do things. And and one of the big themes that came out of this was how what is in it for the horse and and how can we make sure we are doing what our horses really do want and need because you always and this is a theme that has been mentioned before by world horse welfare but you know are we doing are we anthropomorphizing get me um by sort of saying oh let's have them all tucked up nice and warm in their stable on a, on a miserable day because that's what we might want but actually no they probably well not all horses obviously but a lot of horses would rather spend a lot of time outdoors Mm. And there was some touching I noticed on on the topic of social license in those conversations. Can you just explain what what that idea of social license is, Eleanor, for those who are less familiar with it? Yeah, so this is something we have covered before, which I think is really interesting. And a social license to operate is essentially sort of public acceptance that that what you're doing is fine. Um, and in order for horse sport to keep that. We have to, obviously our horse's welfare has to be the number one priority, but it's like we have to show people, if that makes sense, show the public that our horses are being treated as they would like to be treated and that there is plenty in the relationship for the horse. And what particular aspects of the way that people manage, train, compete horses were in the spotlight or did the panel foresee changing in the future? Yeah, so they were asked, um, one of the questions that was posed to uh, a discussion panel of experts was what parts of the horse-human partnership did they think won't still be a thing in 20 years' time? Um, and Andrew McLean, who used to be a top eventer and show jumper and now is on the Racing Victoria Welfare Board in Australia, he he believes things will change and he thinks that say racing will still be there but without the whips he thinks tight nose bands won't be a thing um, and he thinks that human understanding of how horses learn will have taken great steps forward mm. and finally sort of on a similar but different topic there was a great story told at the conference by a lady called debbie matthews just tell us what that was about yeah oh this was lovely i had tears in my eyes and and from the reaction on twitter i, I definitely wasn't the only one um this is debbie matthews who's founded go racing green which is aiming to help people who love racing but have challenges in their lives get to race courses and help uh, make racing more inclusive but she was also talking about a pony that she took on a rescued pony from world horse welfare and how this pony rosie just the difference this pony has made to her her mental health and well-being and you know the the thing she said that really stuck with me was she said without rosie i wouldn't still be here she was my, and is my savior Mm, that's lovely. Thank you, Eleanor, for that insight into that conference. Becky, you've been writing about a really difficult and, and sad topic this week, which is vets' mental health. It's an area which has been a concern for some time, but this has come into the spotlight recently because of some new research. Is that right? Yes. Um, the British Veterinary Association did a survey to find out um, the impact COVID had had on vets. And I think 74% had said they were worried about stress and burnout. Now, going back to 2013 research, um, there was work done highlighting some concerning figures around suicide in the industry, which, you know, when speaking to different vets for this story, they each agreed mental health concerns are getting worse in the industry. 
And just looking at your story, there was some discussion about about suicide and about the idea of euthanasia sort of being normalised among vets, because obviously it does happen with our animals, which I thought was really interesting and it's something you spoke to some vets about. That's right. Um, I spoke to Lucy Grieve, uh, president of the British Equine Veterinary Association, and she said, you know, it's because often vets are dealing with death regularly, which isn't something other uh, professions might have. Um, and, you know, she said the concept of euthanasia is part of their job. Um, so, you know, if a vet's in a dark place, it's quite a difficult thing for them to deal with. And what aspects of the veterinary profession are causing these problems? Why are vets getting stressed and why is their mental health coming under pressure? There's a number of things, you know, it's very multifactorial as what each of the vets said. I mean, job pressures and demands over the years have increased. The risk of litigation is higher um, than it used to be. And clients having a higher expectation, especially as technology and medicine has advanced, But of course, these procedures and drugs, they come with a cost. There isn't an NHS for horses. So when, you know, that puts a lot of stress on a vet trying to treat a horse to the best of their ability. But there might be limitations on what a client can or is prepared to pay. And another point that came up is social media and vets getting treated quite horribly online at, at times. And, you know, that's not okay. It's been rightly said mental health issues can affect everyone. And vets are very much human like the rest of us. By all means, if an issue has unfortunately arisen, then raise it with the practice or raise it with your vet. Have a conversation about what what went wrong and don't just take social media, I guess, to pull someone apart. And I think it's important for us as clients to remember that you're not the vet's only uh, only visit that day and, and to think about what they might have been through already before they get to you, maybe. Absolutely. And something that's stuck with me for a couple of years now, um, I had a horse put down, sadly, Echo, um, a few years ago. And, you know, the vet had been treating her for a long time and really rooting for her. And the day she was put down, I remember it was in the morning and, you know, the vet was so professional. And but, you know, you could see she was affected. I was in bits. But, you know, after what happened, I got to go inside, a friend came over, I got to spend the day processing my emotions. But what stuck with me was that vet then had to go and deal with the next client, be it an emergency or who knows if she put down another horse that day. So I think it's important just to remember vets have very real emotions and when they turn up to treat your horse, you know, I think it, it would help to maybe just consider what else they've sort of seen to that day. And if vets are affected by mental health issues, where can they seek help? So the veterinary associations, BIVA, BBA and RCVS have some great mental health initiatives um, such as Mind Matters and BIVA and RCVS have also prepared a recent film. There's also charities such as VetLife and the Veterinary Defence Association as well. And two of the vets I spoke to mentioned they're on some vet-only social media groups where vets sort of chat about their day amongst, you know, with vets only, which I think it's encouraging there is help out there. And, you know, it's an issue the industry is very much aware of and really trying to help with. 
Mm, that's really interesting. You mentioned sort of reaching out to other vets. It's something I've thought about with people going into offices less in other lines of work during COVID that um, I've, I've often thought, you know, that if you take a difficult phone call or whatever at work, you want to be able to bounce that around with your colleagues afterwards and be reassured that, you know, you said the right thing and did the right thing. And it's not an opportunity we get when we're at home. And maybe that's something that affects vets too, if they're they're seeing their colleagues less face to face. So, you know, obviously vet practices are open, they're, they're essential, but but I don't know whether there, there is less sort of social interaction because of COVID and really important to be able to, to share what you've been through. Thank you, Becky, for all of that insight into, into vets mental health. It's such an important topic. You know, these people look after our horses, but we need to look after them too. Finally, we're coming over to you, Lucy, and we're going to talk about something which has become a very hot and thorny topic, which is British Eventing's IT systems. There was a report released last week from a meeting of B's IT task force earlier this month. What did that report say, Lucy? So, yes, Pippi, you're right. It's And just to give a little bit of background, I think to anyone in the eventing world probably needs no introduction to to the IT situation as it's been running now for for a few years and and has cost quite a lot of money. Essentially, so the task force, this was set up uh, this year by British Eventing to, and their whole job is to look at the system, how it's working in real terms, what issues the end user, which I hate that phrase, but you know, the scorers, the people making entries, owners, what issues they're having, how serious those issues are and how those can be how those can be improved and what workarounds are happening. So they are doing a really important job there. And if, I mean, taking sort of looking at objectively, that meeting report was always going to be a a list of things that are going wrong. That was what was going to come out of it. But even saying that, and I do have sympathy with everyone involved in this project because everyone from riders, um, scorers, British eventing, everyone wants this to work and to finally sort of, to see a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm hoping some of the issues that have been raised there now it's the off season they'll have time to hopefully sort some of those out. And this season a different website Eventing Scores has been used to take some aspects of the job such as scoring, sectioning, allocating times away from the, the sort of core BE website which has, has helped alleviate some problems. Do you think there's the possibility or, or did the report reference the possibility of that becoming a more long-term solution? So yes, that was one of the the recommendations that that the report made. And I mean, just going into some of the detail of some of the aspects of of sort of specific sections coming out of that report, scoring results, the the current system, it has been labelled, and this isn't me saying this is what the report says as not fit for purpose when it's in use. And so, eventing scores did step in earlier this year and provide scoring functionality, which passes the results onto sort of the BE system. And I know that that is something that has been has been passed on to onto the BE board as a as a possible solution for certain certain parts of the website and helping make everyone's lives hopefully smoother and easier and less costly going forwards. Mm. And mentioning the board there, I think that's where the decisions lie, although this task force is, is looking at problems and making recommendations. And that's something you discussed with BE's chief executive Jude Matthews, didn't you, Lucy? What did she say? Absolutely. Uh, she gave me some more detail about what the task force is doing um, and 
what their role is and she also said that you know these are recommendations coming out of the report but ultimately it will be the board's decision about about what happens uh, she also told me that the forecast it spend uh, for next year is 390,000 and I think it's going to be interesting to see, actually, British Venting's got their AGM next Tuesday, because, I mean, numbers like that, I, I kind of want to see that in context of, of what that means. It sounds a lot, but when you're looking at the, the task force report, which was suggesting that running costs, if if they didn't, if they were wanting to plough ahead and carry on with the system as it was, we're looking at the region of sort of 600,000. So it it's hard to know what those figures look like. And I think it will be important to get some more context around that and, and how it's going to, how it's going to hopefully work in the future. And hopefully we can, we can not be talking about this in another year's time. Mm, it's definitely a story that uh, that I think you're sick of and I'm a little bit sick of. But we do have to find a workable solution. And uh, and those are big numbers, as you say, on the money side, whichever of those numbers you look at, six figures is always terrifying. Um, and and we want a solution that isn't costing the sport a huge amount of money, but is, is workable and in place so that riders, owners, entries, agents, scorers, everybody who's involved, who's a stakeholder, has something that works going forward that, that serves all its purposes. A tricky one. Yeah. It's really tricky. And yeah, I think that's, that's certainly what we wanted, something something that's going to work and something that's going to be workable and not cost the earth. So hopefully, hopefully the British Eventing will get there. Well, thank you, Lucy, for uh, for delving into that report for us. It's a long report and, uh, and it's good to have a little bit of clarity on it. And to Eleanor and Becky for giving us your insight today too. Now we go over to Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine to hear his thoughts on mud fever. One that we're definitely seeing more of in the practice at the moment is mud fever. It's one of those things that you're always going to come across if you own horses long enough. Um, we term it paston dermatitis. And in essence, you have infection with within the skin or on the skin that causes the legs to come really sort of sore. Quite often you'll get a bit of a sticky yellow, yellow tacky fluid being secreted as well. Um, some horses uh, really resent you palpating them. Um, some horses get swollen legs and things like that. And we, we classically call this mud fever because you do see it during the winter months um, as a result of the skin getting wet, um, continuously getting wet rather. So, Mud fever itself, there are multiple little causal um, factors to mud fever. The, one of the biggest culprits is a little bacteria called Dermatophilus congelensis. Um, it's pretty much found everywhere in the environment. And sometimes it's found as what we term a commensal on the front of the skin. So it's kept in check by a normal healthy immune system and normal healthy skin barrier as well. The problems come when you apply boots or if the skin is getting constantly wet or traumatized. So if you've got ill-fitting brushing boots or if you have any kind of overreach boots, chances are that you're going to get some scrapes or abrasions on the back, quite often on the back of the pastern or the side of the heel. And this gives a bug a bit of a window of opportunity. It will essentially go in and onto the skin, sometimes underneath it, and it will start to replicate. When this happens other bugs then also take advantage of that say you've had a breakdown in the skin barrier and that needs to be addressed so a lot of these things again you find red skin really sore really itchy that 
can smell sometimes a little bit in this yellow tacky fluid. From that sort of thing, the key with them is to get them clean and to get them clean and to get them dry. So our advice is basically clipping your legs out, which is sometimes a nightmare for some people if they have horses with uh, heavy feathers, but get those legs clipped out so you can get down to skin level. Clean it with dilute chlorhexidine or hibby scrub. Leave that on for probably about five minutes before washing it off and then towel drying the leg. And that's the important thing that if you do use chlorhexidine on a limb, that it's left on there, washed off and then dried. The bugs that sit on the top of the skin, they love to be in nice kind of warm, damp environments. They'll replicate really well in those conditions. So if you're washing them off and then you're drying that area, you're making it a really inhospitable place for those bugs to grow. So you're gonna get on top of it very, very quickly doing that. Removing the scabs is sometimes a little bit awkward. Some horses really resent you actually picking those scabs off. So sometimes getting your vet out, a little bit of light sedation and everything to get all those scabs off. But the bugs will be sitting underneath those scabs and it's important to get rid of them. But also important to sweep those scabs up as well because it's still you're going to get bugs that are sat under there. And the last thing you want to do is just kind of leaving a plethora of them just over the floor. Um... We don't often use antibiotics straight off in these ones. Everyone wants to jump for the antibiotics as soon as you get a, a mud fever. Now, if you have a dermatitis in which the leg is swollen and coming up the leg, there may be the, the necessity to use antibiotics. But I'm a great believer in giving these pain relief first. They are really uncomfortable. Uh, there are a lot of proprietary um, pain relief things out there, but phenylbutazone um, is one that a lot of people would just use to make sure that they keep the horse comfortable while you're getting it all treated. Systemic antibiotics or steroids are used in the more complicated or stubborn cases um, and sometimes with these ones will also give you emollients or emollients with additional um, antibiotics in them that you can apply to the skin topically to try and get rid of them. But I think the key with them is get on top of them really early, get them clean, get them dry. Um, but if you are getting what we would anticipate to be mud fever but not in the winter months they can actually be some other things so I would put a cautionary note that if you've got a mud fever that doesn't seem to be getting any better quite quickly seems to be spreading a bit seems to get big ulcers or anything like that do give your vet practice a little buzz there are other things that look very very similar to um, mud fever that quite often immune based and you those ones take a little bit more management and a little bit more control. So again, mud fevers are usually quite simple and quick and easy to get on top of. Speak to your veterinary practice, dead easy, but the key to them is getting them clipped out, get them clean, get them dry, and make sure that you're stopping any further trauma onto the limb. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, Ricky will be back to talk about how to manage horses prone to tying up. And our guest will be British Olympic show jumper, Jeff Billington. Jeff is a great character, so I am definitely looking forward to that one. We'll have all the week's news as normal too. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. It's fantastic to see how many of you are listening along each week now. We'll be back for the next episode next week, so goodbye until then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.